following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. It's my own private opinion that Paul's letter to the Romans is the greatest letter ever written. The Romans epistle, if you will, spells out in breathtaking detail the glorious gospel of our blessed God. It unpacks the good news of what God has accomplished for the sake of his name, for the praise of his mercy, and for the full and lasting joy of all who believe in his Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul explains in the letter to the Romans how all who believe in Christ go from being under the dominion of sin to being under the reign of grace. Romans is not a book about what sinners must do in order to gain God's favor. That would not be gospel. Rather, it is a book about how God, out of sheer grace and unprovoked love, through the person and work of his Son, has reconciled his enemies to himself, transforming them from the inside out so that they genuinely treasure the God they once despised and genuinely despise the sin they once treasured. Paul explains how, although we justly deserve the outpouring of God's wrath and fury because of our sinful and willful rebellion against him, we instead experience the outpouring of God's love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, as Christian just read from Romans chapter 5. It is a letter that spells out how God's wisdom made a way for his love to save sinners from his wrath in a way that is totally consistent with his justice and righteousness. It is a letter that explains how God can be both just and the justifier of all those who believe in Jesus. The gospel, as it is expounded in Romans, is the joyful declaration of what the living God has done to save sinners by himself, from himself, and for himself. Leon Morris said that God is the most important word in the letter to the Romans. He said, Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates to God. In our concern to understand what the Apostle is saying about righteousness, justification, and the like, we ought not to overlook his tremendous concentration on God. He concludes by saying there is nothing like the book of Romans. And so I invite you to take your copy of God's word this morning and turn with me to the very last chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 16. I've entitled this message, The Centrality and Ultimacy of God's Glory in Christ. The Centrality and Ultimacy of God's Glory in Christ. There are so many things in this life that we just can't be sure of. But there is something that you can be absolutely sure of. 
and it has to do with two of the most important questions that you can ask yourself in this life. Number one, who am I? And number two, why am I? Or why am I here? And I'm here to tell you with unshakable confidence and unhesitating certainty and with all of the authority of God's inspired and infallible word supporting this claim that you are an individual made in the image of God and you exist for the glory of God. Every last one of you hearing my voice, you, you, you are made in the image of God and you exist for the glory of God. Indeed, it's why everything exists. Some of you this morning seem to really know who you are, and you seem to really understand why you are and why you're here. Some of you this morning are truly struggling with anxiety and confusion and uncertainty and identity. At times, your life seems to be meaningless. Some of you are here and you're serious about God and you're serious about reality and you're serious about life. And some of you just aren't. Everyone in this room is in a different stage and in a different season of life. Some have come to this place with the joy of the Lord as their strength. Others are in a pit of despair and absolute defeat. Some are battling depression. Some are battling loneliness. Others are burdened because they have loved ones, close loved ones, who are marching blindly to hell. And your heart is weighed down by this reality, and it should. My point is that all of us are fighting our own battles and experiencing our own trials. And while it can be hard to relate to one another in the different seasons that we are in, something that we all have in common is this. We are individuals made in the image of God, and we exist for the glory of God. That we can be certain of. That is what we have in common. And that's not my opinion. It's objective truth that comes straight at us from the pages of the Word of God, the Bible. And one of the reasons it's critical that we meet every single Sunday and why some of you need to take this weekly meeting more seriously and show up more consistently is that during this time when the Word of God is opened up, our souls and our priorities are realigned. The same way that our bodies need to be realigned every now and then by a chiropractor. Our souls and our priorities need to be realigned on a regular basis because of the beatings that they endure every single day by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world wants to bend us and conform us to its godless image, which is why we are to do everything we can to put ourselves in situations where we are allowing God to transform us by the renewal of our minds. And one of those situations, if you will, is the weekly gathering of the people of God under the proclamation of the word of God. So since we are individuals made in the image of God, and since we exist for the glory of God, the question then has to be asked. If this is who you are, and if this is why you exist, what are you actually living for? If this is who you are, as defined by the living God, and this is why you exist, according to God, is this what you are actually living for? I'm not asking what you profess to be living for, what your parents want you to be living for, or what you ought to be living for. I'm asking what are you actually and truly living for? What I hope to do this morning is give you 
something infinitely important to live for, no matter who you are or where you are in this season of life. And I'm not saying that this is one of many massively important realities to live for, but this is the single most important reality, not only to live for, but also to die for. And that reality is the glory of God. The glory of God. Now, unless you want to be God, it should be good news to you that you are not the center of the universe or of reality. The truth of that statement ought to free you and take off of you a massive amount of weight and pressure and anxiety. You are not the center. You are not supreme. Your life does not exist for you. Your time, your talents, your treasures do not exist for you. Your singleness doesn't exist for you. Your marriage doesn't exist for you. Your family doesn't exist for you. And if it is well with your soul this morning, because of the grace of God, because of the gospel, I want you to know that your salvation, your forgiveness, your eternal blessedness, and your newness of life in Christ do not exist for you. You are not central, you are not pivotal, either in the physical realm or in the spiritual realm. Listen very carefully. The absolute center of the universe and of reality, and the ultimate goal of the universe and of reality, is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And I want to show you this today from one of the greatest letters ever written, Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. You know, we really can learn a lot about what's important by how something or how someone ends. We tend to remember someone's last words, their dying words, their deathbed words. We know what's ultimately important by what was on the heart and mind of our Savior in his high priestly prayer in John 17, what appears to be his final extended prayer. We can learn a lot about what's important by how something or someone ends. And that is certainly true about Paul's letter to the Romans and how it ends, how it comes to a conclusion. In these 16 chapters, Paul has expounded and unpacked the glorious gospel of God. He has shown that everyone needs to be saved from the righteous wrath of God by the magnanimous grace of God that glorifies the infinite power of God and the inscrutable wisdom of God. Paul has unpacked that. Paul is done explaining at this point. He is done expounding. He is done unpacking. He is done defending. He is done vindicating. He is done exhorting. At this point, at the end of the letter, it is safe to say that Paul is worshiping. Paul is worshiping. Listen to the very last words of Paul in this breathtaking letter. Romans chapter 16, verse 27. Now, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The book of Romans ends on the note of the centrality and ultimacy of God's glory in Christ. God's glory in Christ. I want to do three things this morning that I trust will be for your eternal good, your greatest joy. Three things that will be for your greatest good and your full and lasting joy in the God whose image you are made in and the God whose glory you were made for. Number one, I want to do what seems absolutely daunting and impossible. 
I want to attempt to define the glory of God. Define the glory of God. Second, I want to unpack that little phrase in verse 27, to God be glory. And then third, I want to walk you through the book of Romans to show you that the absolute center of the universe and of reality and the ultimate goal of the universe and of reality is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That is what is central and that is what is ultimate. My hope is that you would join the Apostle Paul and align the entirety of your life with what we see in this letter this morning. God is worthy of you and I making his glory the absolute center and the ultimate goal of our lives and our existence, even as it is the absolute center and ultimate goal of all things. It doesn't matter how old you are or where you are. God is worthy of you making his glory absolutely central to your life. And so... Let's try to define the glory of God. We have to do this. This is massively important, and it seems impossible, but we have to try because we can't assume that we're all thinking about the same thing when we talk about the glory of God. If, as Psalm 19 says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, shouting it day and night, and if the whole earth is full of his glory, Isaiah 6, And if I'm going to stand up here this morning and make these gigantic statements about the glory of God being the center and supreme goal of all things and how the glory of God in Christ ought to be the center and supreme goal of your life, well then, we can't afford to be ignorant or assume that everyone is thinking biblically about the glory of God. It's difficult to define because it's more like trying to explain the word splendor than the word sparkler. You can describe a sparkler, right? It's a handheld firework, typically 8 to 15 inches in length and about the thickness of a pencil, more or less. And if you light the end of it on fire, it emits sparks for about 30 seconds or so. But you can't do that with the word splendor. You can't do that with the word magnificence or beauty. You know splendor and you know magnificence and you know beauty when you see it in a sunset or in a sunrise or in the breathtaking beauty of the night sky. It's the same way with the word glory. One of the most important words for glory in the Hebrew Old Testament is the word kabod. It signifies something heavy, something weighty. We are told, for instance, of, of Eli the judge in 1 Samuel. He heard the news about the Ark of the Covenant being lost to the Philistines. He fell back off his seat and he broke his neck and he died. For, we are told, the man was old and heavy. Kabod. Whenever David's son, Absalom, was due to cut his hair at the end of the year, we are told that he had to do it because it was, quote, kabod on him, heavy on him. And according to the writer, roughly five pounds of hair. Kabod was also used to describe a heavy battle, battles that were particularly fierce and brutal. But the word kabod was also used to describe a person's wealth, a person's wealth. Abraham was said to be very kabod, rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, Genesis 13, 2. It was used to describe King Solomon's wealth. This man was weighty with wealth. He was loaded with riches. Today, we talk about a celebrity's net worth, right, which refers to their total accumulated wealth. That's one of the ways the word glory is used in the Bible. The glory of God is God's net worth, if you will, 
all that he is and all that he possesses as the sovereign God of the universe. Robert Raymond, in his systematic theology, defines the glory of God this way. God's glory is the inescapable weight of the sheer intrinsic godness of God. The inescapable weight of the sheer intrinsic godness of God. And there's more. The word glory not only signifies God's weightiness, God's wealth, and his worth, but it also refers to his prestige, his reputation, his renown, his honor, his fame. There's also some closely related vocabulary that is often found in context with glory. For example, in Psalm 96, which is a celebration of God's greatness, verse 3 commands the readers to declare his glory among the nations. And then down in verse 8, the writer calls us to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. But then between those two verses, the psalmist states that splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Psalm 145 also speaks of the glorious splendor of God's majesty. And so the glory of God also refers to the manifest beauty and splendor of his holiness. The manifest beauty and splendor of his holiness. The word holy essentially means separate. Separated from what's common. Separate on its own separated in its own category. And when the word holiness is, re- is used with reference to God, the emphasis is on God's utter and total uniqueness as God. He is in a class and he is in a category all by himself. There is nothing and no one like him in all of creation. The greatest star in the universe is no closer to being like God than the smallest dust particle because there is nothing like him whatsoever. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, There is none holy like Yahweh. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Holiness signifies the fact that there is none like him. So the glory of God is his holiness revealed, his holiness manifested, his holiness displayed. As one pastor theologian put it, the holiness of God is his concealed glory. The glory of God is his revealed glory. Holiness. Let me show you an example of this. Isaiah chapter 6, very well-known passage, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his. And you'd expect him to say what? Holiness. That is what these angels are intrigued by. The holiness of God. Taken to the third degree. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. They are awestruck by his intrinsic holiness. They recognize that There is none like this king in all of his beauty and all of his magnificence. But they are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Why? Because God's glory is his holiness revealed. His holiness manifested. God's glory is his holiness put on display for his creatures. 
His glory is the revelation of the net worth of his infinite and unparalleled holiness. One more example, and this is very explicit. Leviticus 10.3, God says, I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me. And thank God for Hebrew parallelism. Because the next line says this. After he says, I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me, he says, and I will reveal my glory before all the people. So what is this passage telling us? The demonstration of his holiness is the revelation of his glory. God's glory is the visible demonstration, the open manifestation of his holiness. And so when you put all of this together, the glory of God can be defined like this. The glory of God is the indescribably beautiful revelation of the infinite weight and worth of all that God is in his matchless holiness and fame. I say it again. When you put all of this together, you've done all the work of digging through the word to, to, to understand the glory of God. And when you put it all together, the glory of God is the indescribably beautiful revelation of the infinite weight and worth of all that God is in his matchless holiness and fame. And so that's my attempt at defining the undefinable. And it's no wonder that Jesus is referred to as the radiance of the glory of God because Jesus is the indescribably beautiful revelation of the infinite weight and worth of all that God is in his matchless holiness and fame. That's who our Savior is. So secondly, as we consider Paul's concluding words, to God be glory, what does that mean? What does that mean? It's helpful as we look at this to understand that the word be isn't even there in the Greek. There's no verb there. It's literally to God, glory forevermore. To God, glory forevermore. Whatever this means, we know that Paul is worshiping. And however we take it, we ought to follow in Paul's steps and worship this God. You see, the way Paul leaves it here in the Greek... I think it can be taken both as, number one, a worshipful statement of objective truth and a worshipful statement of subjective longing. It can be a worshipful statement of objective truth and a worshipful statement of subjective longing. It can be a worshipful statement of objective truth, i.e., God alone is glorious, or to God alone belongs the glory. Whether people acknowledge it or not, buy it or not, glory belongs to God alone. And the day is coming when all will finally acknowledge that truth, even though it will be too late for some, too, too late for many. Or Paul's statement can be a worshipful statement of subjective longing. In other words, as if Paul is saying, Oh, may God be given glory. May God receive glory. May God, to God alone, be glory. Praise him, exalt him, extol him, and worship him. It's a subjective inner longing, an emotional longing that Paul has. And it could very well be that Paul's inner longing was that God be adored and magnified as supremely great and glorious. The reason I think it can go both ways is because in the Bible... In many other places, it presents this as 
both a worshipful statement and an objective truth. God is infinitely glorious in his holiness and the worshipful statement of subjective longing. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. You see, it's an objective fact. God is glorious, but it's a subjective longing. May God alone receive the glory. Psalm 29.2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. This is what we were made for, friends, to glorify and honor and praise and worship the living God. That's why we exist. That's why we are given families and children, and that's, why we, that's the reason for all things, that he would be glorified. And it's important to note that when we do this, we don't add a single thing to his intrinsic glory. He is infinitely glorious with or without us. But what we do add is another element of creation pointing away from itself to the all-satisfying, infinitely satisfying, eternally satisfying glory of God. That's what we are made for, to glorify this God. And until we get this right, life will make absolutely no sense. And so that's how Paul is ending his letter to the Romans. God is glorious forevermore. May he receive from me and you and all the nations in this world the glory and praise that he alone is worthy of as God. And so, having seen how Paul ends this massively important letter on the note, the high note of the glory of God, I want to spend the rest of our time together walking you through the book of Romans in order to show you that the absolute center of the universe and of reality and the ultimate goal of the universe and of reality is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. In talking about the centrality and the ultimacy of God's glory in Christ, we are talking about God's glory in Christ being the ultimate goal and purpose and end of all things. It's good to know what the end of this is, right? It's good to know that creation, life, our existence... Reality has a goal. It's not just meaningless unraveling of time and chance and happenings and circumstances. There is a target in mind, and that target is the glory of God in Christ. Do you know why a new creation is coming? Do you know why a new heavens and a new earth will be created? It is all for the full and lasting exhibition of the glory of God in Christ which will be the full and lasting enjoyment of all those who come to trust and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where everything is headed. And I want you to see this now in the letter to the Romans, the absolute center of the universe and of reality, and the ultimate goal of the universe and of reality is God's glory in Christ. And so many of you have heard of the Romans road, and you use that in your evangelism, right? You take them through all these stopping points in the book of Romans to show them to Christ, and that's a good thing. Well, I want to take you on the glory road in Romans now, the glory road. And so may God grant us what we need this morning, eyes to see and hearts to savor and forever be satisfied with the glory that we were made for. And so we begin in chapter one, verse five. We're going to do this kind of fast. So Romans chapter one, verse five, if you want to turn there. Paul says, we have received grace and apostleship, this came through Jesus Christ, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And you might be looking 
again at it and say, well, where's the word glory? It says, for the sake of his name. Not for the sake of his glory. But if we trace the theme of the glory of God through Romans, this is the right place to begin because this verse is dripping with the theme of glory. You see, the Old Testament uses the word glory and name when referring to God interchangeably. The glory of God, the name of God. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 72, 19. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Glory, name, glory, name used interchangeably throughout the Old Testament. The clearest examples of this, for example, Psalm 102, verse 15. Nations will fear the name of Yahweh, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Name and glory, often used synonymously. And then obviously, uh, Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Moses says, please, Show me your glory. And do you remember how God responded? He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before you. Moses says, please show me your glory. And God says, I'm going to reveal to you my name. My name. So why was Paul an apostle? Why was he sent to preach Christ? Why was grace given to him? Why was apostleship given to him? So that the glory of Christ, the name of Christ, might be magnified and made much of among all the nations of the earth. The Great Commission, friends, is about the glory and name of Christ being worshipped and praised among the nations. The, 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 The Great Commission is not about getting sinners out of hell or on the road to hell and into heaven. The Great Commission fundamentally is about the glory of Christ being made much of all around the earth. It's all for the sake of his name, all for the sake of his glory. So here, at the very outset of Romans, Paul states that the whole reason he was given grace and the whole reason he was given apostleship was for the sake of Christ's name and Christ's glory. Now, all of this, of course, assumes that the name of Christ and the glory of Christ are not being magnified and they are not being treasured among the nations, among the Gentile peoples of the world. And that brings us to Romans chapter 1, verse 21, and the tragedy of the human race. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. We are told in the previous verse that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that mankind is left without an excuse. God has revealed his glory all over the place so that no one is without excuse. And then verse, one, verse 21 says, For although they knew God from creation, they did not honor God. The word in the Greek is actually glorify. They did not glorify him as God, and they did not give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The Gentile world sees the open manifestation of the glory of God and refuses to return that in praise and glory and honor and thanks. That is the tragedy of the human race as Paul lays it out here. Look as he continues, verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. And now listen to the epitome of foolishness. They exchanged 
the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the devastating exchange that made the great exchange upon the cross necessary. This is the devastating exchange that made the great exchange necessary. We sinfully exchange the glory of God for sin and for lesser things, primarily the images that we see in the mirror, and yet the good news of the gospel is that God in his mercy made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a glorious exchange. Christ takes our sin, our shame, and our death, and God in turn gives believers Christ's righteousness, Christ's honor, and Christ's life. And after God awakens people to their foolishness in exchanging this all-satisfying glory of God for sin and self and the empty things of this world, and after God regenerates sinners and raises them up to newness of life, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 7, that these individuals begin to look for and long for the glory of God that they foolishly exchanged in their lost state. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. God, on the day of judgment, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing, this is descriptive of the believer, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. The glory we once traded is now the glory we are seeking after. Look at verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But notice verse 10. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first and also the Greek. Notice how those who seek the glory of God, the glory they once traded for sin, they finally, on the day of judgment, lay hold of that glory. There will be glory and honor and peace for those who do good. Well, Gentiles are not the only ones who have sinned against the glory and name of God. Listen now in verse 23 of chapter 2, how Paul describes the tragic situation of the Jews. The tragic situation of the Jews. He says, you who boast in the law actually dishonor God by breaking the law. He has just laid out their hypocrisy. And now he says in verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You see, the Gentiles in Paul's day thought God was an absolute joke because of the sinful lifestyle, the hypocritical lifestyle of the divinely privileged Jewish people who were supposed to be the faithful worshipers of God. But because of their conduct, now the Gentiles are blaspheming the name of God, the glory of God. And so the Jews are in this state as well. I mean, it's crazy. To them belonged the adoption, the glory. The covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the patriarchs, the promises. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, forever blessed. And so the Jews aren't any better off because they too, like the Gentiles, have blasphemed and sinned against the name of God and the glory of God. And have invited the Gentiles to do the same. And then Paul comes to chapter 3. 
And he sums up his argument that everyone, both Jew and Gentile, is under sin and guilty before God. And here's the verdict. Here's the conclusion. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you see how Paul describes the very essence of sin? It is to fall short or literally to lack the glory of God, to lack the glory of God. Fall short isn't the most helpful translation here. Jesus actually used this exact Greek word when he told the rich young man, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When he, whenever he said you lack one thing, that word lack is the very same phrase when Paul says all have sinned and fall short or all have sinned and now lack the glory of God. Why do they lack the glory of God? Why do all lack the glory of God? Jew and Gentile, why do we lack it? Well, because we traded it. We exchanged it back in chapter 1, verse 21. The very thing that was to be our joy and our treasure and our refuge and our place of safety and our, our security and the thing that we live for, we now lack it because we exchanged it. We threw it away. Romans 3.23 is best explained by Romans 1.23. All have sinned and lacked the glory of God because in our foolishness we have exchanged the glory of God for sin and idolatry and the worshiping of the images in the mirror. Every sin, by the way, finds its root in this. Seeking satisfaction in other things at the cost of turning away from the all-satisfying, infinitely satisfying, and eternally satisfying glory of God. That's the essence of sin. Your deep-rooted sin, your besetting sin, as some refer to it, is actually a glory problem. It is a glory problem. It is not a lust problem. It is not a pride problem. It is not fundamentally a greed problem. Your sin and my sin is ultimately a glory problem. We become blind to and unmoved by the glory of God, the very thing for which everything exists. The indescribably beautiful revelation of the infinite weight and worth of all that God is in his matchless holiness and fame. If you're blind to that, if you are bored with that, it's inevitable. You're going to go chasing after something else and it's going to get you in trouble. And if you continue to go down that path, it's going to lead you to hell, the lake of fire. Well, then Paul goes on in chapter 3 to explain that in spite of our sin and in spite of us lacking the glory of God because we sinfully exchanged the glory of God, nevertheless, he says that we who believe are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then when we come to chapter 4, the next time Paul mentions glory is when he explains how to receive this great salvation, this great salvation, and the full and free forgiveness that comes with this great salvation. Chapter 4, verse 20. Paul is explaining in chapter 4 what saving faith looks like. What it means to believe in Jesus. And this is critical for some of you who are asking the question, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? How do I believe in Jesus? Tell me how to believe in Jesus. Paul explained in chapter 4 how 
to do that and what that looks like. And he does that by pointing to an old example from before Christ, Abraham. Isn't it amazing that Paul, to teach us how it, what it means to believe in Jesus, actually points to Abraham and points to that faith that he had and said, that's the kind of faith you want to have. To not just believe in God, but to, like Abraham, believe God. Believe God. Notice 420. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, literally giving glory to God. Saving faith brings glory to God. God puts his glory on display whenever someone savingly believes in him. We come to him weak, and he is infinitely strong. We come in faith so foolish, and he is infinitely wise. We come empty and destitute, and he comes to us all-sufficient. We come sinful and guilty, and God meets us as one who is ready to forgive and merciful We come with nothing in our hands, and he comes with all that he is to pour out upon us in mercy. Why does saving faith glorify God? Because God gets to display the glory of his grace and mercy in the giving of himself to sinners who have absolutely nothing to offer him. That's why saving faith glorifies God. That's why Abraham's faith brought glory to God, because it allowed God to be who he is. Abraham didn't come with works. He looked to ultimately Christ's work. Rejoice to see his day. He describes this a little bit further in chapter 4, verse 4. Go back. I want you to see this morning what saving faith looks like. Now, to the one who works, that is, tries to earn his way to God, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you work for God, he's going to give you what your sloppy works deserve. If you work for God, he's going to give you what your sinful works deserve. And it's not heaven, and it's not life, and it's not justification. But notice this. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Do you see that? Faith in this context is synonymous with not working. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, God declares you to be righteous. So why does saving faith glorify God? Because God gets to display the glory of his grace in the giving of himself to sinners who have nothing to offer but the sin that makes their salvation necessary. May you come to believe in Christ, those of you who don't, with this kind of faith that calls attention to and magnifies the glory and greatness of God in his saving mercy and power. So are you seeing by this point the centrality of the glory of God in Romans? And now watch this. The glory of God is is not only the absolute center of the universe and of reality, but it's also the ultimate goal of the universe and of reality. It is the very object of our hope and our longing and our expectation. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, this saving faith that he unpacked in chapter 4, we have peace. With God. That peace is a fact and it is a feeling. And when it's not a feeling, 
It's always a fact. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now watch. Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The very thing we traded is now the very thing we long for. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Glory is at the end of the road and at every turn until the end of that road. The glory we exchanged in our stupidity, the glory that we lack because of our foolishness is now the glory that stands at the end of the journey as our ultimate hope and expectation. We will behold his glory. The indescribably beautiful revelation of the infinite weight and worth of all that he is in his matchless holiness and fame. John Stott said, The Christian hope is not uncertain, like our ordinary everyday hopes about the weather or our health. It is a joyful and confident expectation which rests on the promises of God, as we saw in the case of Abraham. And the object of our hope is the glory of God, namely his radiant splendor which will in the end be fully displayed. Already his glory is being continuously revealed in the heavens and the earth. Already it has been uniquely made manifest in Jesus Christ, the incarnate word, most notably in his death and resurrection. One day, however, the curtain will be raised and the glory of God will be fully disclosed. First, Christ himself will appear with great power and glory. Secondly, we will not only see his glory, but we will be changed into it so that we will be glorified in his holy people. He will be glorified in his holy people. Then redeemed human beings who were created to be the image and glory of God, but now through sin fall short and lack that glory, will again and in full measure share in this glory. How do we get there? The gospel. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. How do we get there? How do we go from dust to glory? How do we go from wrath, the expectation of wrath, to the hope of glory? The gospel. How do we go from being foolish glory traders to joyful glory possessors? Well, look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him, Jesus, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, the glory of God was put on display in the resurrection of our Savior. And when he was raised, we too were raised, not just raised to newness of life, but raised to the hope of glory. The glory we traded came after us in the person of Christ. And then when he died under the wrath of God, and he was dead and declared dead in his burial in that tomb, three days later, glory appeared and raised our Savior from the dead. The same glory that lies at the end of the road for us. Go to chapter 8 now. Chapter 8, verse 16. We are told in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, we won't just see glory, we will be changed to be glorious. That's what Paul is saying. We will perfectly reflect the glory of God in Christ. That's one of the reasons why in the book of Revelation, the people of God are described as people who have the name of Christ on their foreheads because we are now 
equipped to per- and glorified to perfectly reveal and mirror his glory to one another and to a new creation. We will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father, Matthew 13, 43. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. This comes after he tells us that all creation is groaning, waiting in pains of childbirth. Whenever Adam sinned and brought death and decay into the world, the creation started groaning, yearning to be delivered from this bondage to futility and decay and corruption. That's why in one of those psalms in the 90s talks about how the hills are clapping their hands and the rivers are clapping their hands and all creation is singing, clapping, because Yahweh is coming. He's coming to judge the earth and when he judges the earth and glorifies his people, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Again, John Stott here is helpful. He says, even the groaning creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The renewed universe will be suffused with its creator's glory. All this is included in the glory of God and is therefore the object of our sure hope. We exult in it. And our vision of future glory is a powerful stimulus to to present duty. Friends, the day is coming when we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, and this perishable body will put on imperishable properties, if you will. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then the creation itself will be set free because we will need a new home that can contain our glory. This, I mean, if we were to walk around in this world as it is, we'd burn up this world with our glory that, 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 that reflects the glory of Christ. God will create a new heavens and a new earth which will liberate creation from the effects of the fall And we will have a new and happy and eternal home suitable for the glory of God, openly manifesting for all eternity through the perfectly glorified people of Christ. This is why that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Verse 28, look at that. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, who, by the way, is the radiance of the glory of God in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. You seeing this glory road? The glory of God in Christ is the goal of all things. It is the goal of predestination. It is the goal of calling. It is the goal of our justification. It is the goal of our sanctification. The glory of God in Christ is the ultimate goal of all things. The glory of God is our ultimate hope. Not only to behold it, but to become radiant reflectors of it. The very thing that we were made for. The very thing God intended in creating image bearers. They were to all display his all-satisfying glory to all of creation. Well, then we come to chapter 9, where 
Paul vindicates God's righteousness and he shows that his word has not failed. But God has kept, God is keeping, and God will keep his promises to ethnic Israelites. And when he goes on to vindicate and defend God's right to choose some and pass over others, You see in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God not fair because he chooses some and passes over others? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's what salvation depends on. Not man's will, not man's striving or exertion, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why is he still going to judge us? If it's his will for me to be a reprobate, non-elect, why does he still find fault in me? I can do nothing but sin. For who can resist his will? If it's his will for me to be lost, who can resist that will? And listen to this apostolic, God-breathed reply. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, now watch this, in order to make known the riches of his what? The riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Why does evil exist? Why does God continue to show his patience toward evil and wickedness and sin in this world? Because the day is coming when he will display the fullness of his wrath and his power against sin and against every last one of his enemies who despised his glory. But why election? Why predestination? Why salvation? To make known the riches of God's glory for vessels of mercy whom he prepared beforehand, namely, before the foundation of the world, for glory. He prepared us for glory. That's what election is about. We get all hung up on, 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 on election. That's because we're not, we don't have our eyes on the glory of God that election calls our attention to. And so we come to the end of this glorious section in Romans 9, 10, and 11. We come to Romans 11.33. Paul, as it were, just throws up his hands in prayer and prays and says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him. And to him are all things. To him be glory, or to him glory forevermore. Amen. God is the ultimate source from him. 
God is the ultimate sustaining power and means of accomplishing all things for his glory through him. And he is the ultimate goal of all things to him, from him, through him, to him, all things to him, glory forevermore. And now we come to chapter 15. Turn to chapter 15. We learn that glory is not just the very thing we, we exchanged in the beginning and the very thing that came seeking us and the very thing that lies at the end of our hope and expectation and deepest longing. But glory, glorifying God, calling attention to the glory of God is the very purpose for which the church exists right now. The church had problems. The church in Rome had problems. You read about that in chapter 14. There were Jews who were still insisting on Sabbath observation. And there were Gentiles who were just like, bro, it's like any other day. Some of the Jews were, you know, strictly eating, you know, vegetables in order to, you know, avoid possibly eating some meat that may have been sacrificed to idols. Whereas Gentiles in the church were just like, bring the bacon cheeseburger, man. There, there was unity issues. There, was, there were problems in the, in the early church. And now Paul, in chapter 15, verse 5, listen to what he calls them to. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement, the very thing they needed for unity, endurance and encouragement, may he grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why unity? To glorify God. With one voice. Not a bunch of individual people doing their own thing, but with one voice, collectively drawing attention to the glory of God. That is why Christ came. That is why Christ is building his church to bring glory to God. It's why we exist 2,000 years later as a local church. It's not meant to be, we're not meant to be individual glory givers, but collectively one voice by our life, by our life together, glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, both in this building and when we go out of this place. And so, Romans chapter 15, verse 7, Therefore, notice, welcome one another. Jew, welcome your Gentile sister. Gentile, welcome your Jewish brother in Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Why did Christ welcome you into his kingdom? Why did Christ fling the doors of heaven open and say, enter in. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come into my Father's kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why did he welcome us into the kingdom of God? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. Christ did and does all things for the glory of God. That's why he welcomed us. Friends, it's good news that you are not the ultimate reason for God saving you. You are not the ultimate reason for God saving you. His glory is the ultimate reason why he saved you. To display the riches of his glory. If you read Ephesians chapter 1 three times in that long, long sentence, run-on sentence, Paul says he elected us, he predestined us, he adopted us, he redeemed us, he forgave us, he sealed us. And he gave us hope. Why? For the praise of his glorious grace. For the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. And Paul continues down this glory road. Look at verse 9. 
Verse 8 says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is, he became a Jew and came to dwell among his people, to show God's truthfulness, to prove that God keeps his word. Why did Christ come in the flesh? To prove that God kept his word. God promised to send a Messiah over and over again in the Old Testament, and Christ came to prove that God keeps his promises. That's what he's saying here. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And... Here's why Christ became a servant to the circumcised. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's why Christ came, was that we would glorify God for his mercy. We would bring glory to God for his mercy. We were created and saved to glorify his mercy. Now, really quick, what does it mean to glorify God? Because this is, this is important. Again, because we can all hear, okay, Justin preached that we are created in the image of God and for the glory of God, and we are called to glorify God. And we can all disperse from this place thinking, I just got to go do all this. And another person thinks, I got to go and do that. What does it mean to glorify God? It's very similar to the word magnify. Magnify. We need to get this right because how do we magnify things today? We magnify things with... A microscope? Or we can magnify things with binoculars or a telescope, for example. And so how are we to magnify God? Are we to magnify God the way we look under a microscope where we take little puny tiny things and we make them look bigger than they actually are? Because that's how some people try to glorify God. Oh, this puny God, look, he, he needs our attention. He needs people in heaven. He's so tiny and weak that, oh, would you just give your heart to him? Will you just make him the Lord of your life? Not realizing that he is the absolute sovereign over everything already. People try to glorify him by putting him under a microscope and saying, look, he's small, but, but, but he could really be big and he could really add this great you know, thing to your life. No, friends, that's not how we're to magnify God. We're to magnify God the way we magnify these massive stars in the heavens where we take massive realities and we magnify them not to make them appear bigger than they are but to show them to be as big as they are and we still don't even get a, a full glimpse of it we are to take the magnify we are to take the telescope of the gospel and of our lives and of our love and hold it up to all that god is in his glory and put that to the blind eyes of sinners and pray that God would open their eyes. That's how we are to magnify God, by not showing him to be bigger than he actually is, but to bring him and show him as he is and all that he is, so that we marvel. He, contained, he, he is infinitely glorious. He fills heaven and earth. Heaven and earth cannot contain him. And so Christ came so that sinners would glorify God for his mercy to show how massive and how, how magnanimous and generous his mercy is. God had no reason to save us but mercy. Christ came to pay a debt that he did not owe to save a hell-bound people who did not deserve it. And now we come to the end of the glory road. Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Paul has unpacked he has expounded, he has defended, he has exhorted, he has commanded, he has encouraged. 
and now he is worshiping. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has now been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul shows that the absolute center of the universe and of reality and the ultimate goal of the universe and of reality and of salvation is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. It's all about the glory of God. Friends, the Christian life begins with a glimpse of the glory of God. Is that not how regeneration happens? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, in the very beginning, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's how the Christian life begins. Well, how does the Christian life, how is it sustained? How is it held together? How are we sanctified? A glimpse of the glory of God by beholding the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Even as that glory cloud in the Old Testament was followed by the Israelites as it would lead them to the promised land, even so today as we behold the glory of God in Christ, that is what leads us to our eternal home. And the Christian life not only begins with glory, it's sustained by glory, but it will end with glory as we see in Titus chapter 2.13. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of what? The glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. John said, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So the Christian life begins with a sight of glory, is sustained by a glimpse of glory. It comes to a conclusion with a sight of Christ's glory. But what about that? What about after that? What about the span of death all the way to infinity, eternity? The Christian's hope for all eternity is to bask in the glory of God in Christ. John 17, 24, Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. And what are we going to do there, Lord? He says, to see, which is a present active verb, meaning it's an ongoing beholding. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's what we're going to be doing is beholding the glory of our Savior. This is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that we are being prepared for. It's eternal glory. 2 Timothy 2.10, eternal glory. Peter calls it his eternal glory in Christ. Friends, this is something to live for. This is something to die for. <clears throat> And so we pray the prayer of Psalm 104, verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. Father, thank you that you have done all that you've done and you're doing all that you do for the eternal exhibition of your glory, which happens to be the same thing as our 
eternal satisfaction and joy. For in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I pray that we would be given eyes to see your glory in the heavens, all around the earth, in your word, in the person and work of your Son, the radiance of your glory. And so we pray with Moses, please continue by your spirit to show us your glory. We ask in our Savior's name. Amen. this morning, I invite you to hear these words from 2 Thessalonians. 
May our God make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So in the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a blessed week.